Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I'm very excited to have two guests with me today. The first is Chaplain Karuna Thompson, who is with the Oregon State Penitentiary, and our second guest is Marty Crittenden, who is a nurse. She is also, she's working as a school um, nurse currently, but she has about a 15 to 20 year history in hospice care, and she also works as a volunteer at the Oregon State Penitentiary, training hospice inmates in the facility to provide hospice care and volunteer services to their colleagues in the facility. So ladies, welcome. I'm delighted to be chatting with you today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Definitely. So if we could start off with some really broad questions, because I have to say, everything I know about prison life, I've probably learned from watching Orange is the New Black, which I suspect is not the best model for getting my information. So could you share with me, perhaps, Karuna, what does happen with an adult in custody who has a terminal illness? What happens to that individual? Of course, yeah. I think it's it's kind of unfamiliar territory for most folks. So... The prison where I am is a men's maximum security prison that in its history has primarily been for lifers. That has changed somewhat. Uh, We're having more people who release from our facility. But because of that, um, we had our own infirmary inside the institution. You can kind of think of uh, prisons as their own small city or small town. Mm -hmm. So our facility has about 2,000 men. And all of their food, all of their work, all of their medical is taken care of on-site there as much as possible. For specialists, they are sent out to the community. But for the most part, all of life happens inside those walls, including Mm -hmm. death. And Mm -hmm. so because we had so many people who were lifers about, I would say it's almost 20 years ago now, the Lifers Club, a group of men who were facing life in prison, realized that they were having friends who were going to the infirmary and who were dying and that they didn't know what was going on and they wanted to be able to be by them because one Mm -hmm. of the things that happens in prison is these very long-term, very close friendships, kind of much more kind of family groups are formed. Mm -hmm. And then this loved one goes to the infirmary and you don't see him and you don't know what's going on. And then you hear that he's passed away. Mm. And so they really were the ones who pushed to have a hospice program created so that they had a legitimate way that they could go and be with their friends and really people who had become family to them through the end of their life. And so we had a wonderful group of people who went down to the Angola uh, prison and looked at their hospice program and several other prison programs and began to put together Uh, a model for our prison, which is primarily volunteer, inmate volunteer based. So because we have our own infirmary, of course, we have our own nursing staff and our own doctors on staff who oversee the program, but really, and a full interdisciplinary team of counselors and spiritual care and um, acute mental health care. And that meets monthly, but it's really the men, the incarcerated adults who really carry the show and Mm -hmm. sit with the people and provide the personal care and uh, provide really the continuity of care uh, for Mm -hmm. one another. And it's it's quite an elegant program. And at the end of life, the last 24 hours to 48 hours, the practice has been that nobody dies alone. So... Mm -hmm. 
we actually have a vigil and men are able to stay with the dying person mm-hmm. for until they pass 24 hours a day. Wow, that's amazing. And that is our, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. And Marty, what is your role with all this? Could you tell us a little bit about that? I meet with the men monthly that are the volunteers in the hospice program, and I do a lot of teaching about um, kind of the latest things that are coming out in the hospice and um, share that information. Uh, we do a lot of group support with these men, uh, sharing mm-hmm. of their stories and what they're going through. Mm-hmm. Do you provide, or does anyone in the system provide, um, grief support to these individuals who have cared for their friends? We do. Uh, it's not as strong as we would hope it would be, but part of the training is that grief support, but also we do provide uh, usually 24 to 48 hours after the death, have everybody who has been working with the particular patient, we get them together to uh, discuss, and they don't like the word debrief. Mm-hmm. So uh, we use the word to process the law, mm-hmm. and then... Um, we do uh, put together based on kind of their sharing a memorial for that individual that is held in the chapel usually within Mm -hmm. the same month of their passing and includes their friends and community Mm -hmm. members. But it it is limited. Uh, Mm -hmm. I wish it were more. In hospice, we often call that degriefing instead of debriefing. (laughs) So could one of you tell me why do the inmates choose to be hospice volunteers? Why would this is a, this is a heavy emotional load. Why would they want to do this? Some of it is just because it's gratifying work. Um, some of them do it because of the guilt that they feel for their past and being a hospice volunteer helps them um, just be able to kind of, give back to society and and, um, makes them feel good. Um, One of them actually shared that uh, he started volunteering because he had a friend that was black and was dying and there were no black hospice volunteers. And so he decided to do this so that other um, hospice patients that were black would have a black hospice volunteer to work with them. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. And what else, what I would, anything, I'm sorry, go ahead. I would add to that just that I think one of the pieces that gets overlooked a little bit is that um, a lot of the hospice volunteers I've worked with over the years have decided to become hospice volunteers because they knew they would be dying there someday. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to help create a standard of care for when they faced that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Is there anything else that either of you would like to add as to what these um, inmates get out of doing this? Sounds like you've provided quite a few good reasons there. Anything else? Well, yesterday evening we had a a discussion actually with the volunteers to kind of get their perspective and what they specifically would like like us to share. And so that's one of the questions that we addressed. And some of the things that they shared was that hospice shows them how special life is and um, one of them even commented that if he had known about hospice before he had done his crime, he wouldn't be there today. Oh, um, my goodness. It's impacted him that much. Um, they also feel like, again, they're family to, these, to the patients, and um, a lot of them have done harm to a lot of people. So sorry. Mm-hmm. And 
can't bring up, you know, can't change that, but feel like by providing care for the other inmates that somehow mm-hmm. they're making up for that. Mm-hmm. So you feel like not only is the hospice volunteer changing the lives of the people who are terminally ill, but functioning in this capacity has also changed the hospice volunteer themselves. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes, very much so. Yeah, Karuna, you're on board with that one, too? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. No, they've, I, they express that again and again. Of, I think in many ways we talk about it of, you know, these guys, um, people go through their dying process, and, and, and that's a massive transformation in itself. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the volunteers really are the ones who are, end up kind of carrying whatever that message was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I know I often think of, I've read or seen on TV about um, people who live in a prison have often been used in the capacity of training dogs, you know, like seeing mm-hmm. eye dogs and things like that. And I, I'm a big, big dog lover, um, yeah. thinking to myself how difficult it would be to let the dog go after you have spent so much time with them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I know a dog is certainly different than a human being, but um, this must be very difficult on the volunteers. What is your experience with that? Well, my my experience is that there's tremendous grief and there's tremendous bonding. And one of the pieces that we've kind of worked to integrate a little bit and sometimes can't be as successful with as we'd want to is trying to give people a gap between clients so that they can uh, feel the loss and go through the loss before stepping in with the next person. Yeah. Sometimes we're able to do that and sometimes we're not. Uh, But it really... Some of them, it will rattle them. And, and we've lost volunteers. Like any volunteer program, we have kind of regular attrition mm-hmm. um, where people come in and they sit with one client and they're really moved by it and discover, like, that's all they want to do. They don't want to do this anymore. It's too hard. Yeah. This is um, hard work. This is very hard work. It's incredibly hard work. And, you know, you're loving somebody and they die. <laughs> like, that's yes. who wants yes. to do that. Um, yes. And I... That really makes it very different in this setting, too, because um, not only are these men the volunteers, but they're the family, too. And so they're, mm-hmm. they're doing dual roles. And mm-hmm. I think that's incredibly hard and heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I know one, one of the gentlemen commented that, um, you know, a piece of him goes when somebody dies, but also as he lives on, he carries a piece of that person that died. And I like mm-hmm. that. I mm-hmm. Very poignant. Yes, I'm sure they often, in addition to finding this to be very difficult, find it to be inspirational in many ways. Has that been your experience as well? We had a really interesting comment last night from one of the men who uh, is one of the newer volunteers, but it was a, a Vietnam veteran in prison for some pretty violent crimes. And he talked about, he described that his wife used to think that he was morbid because he liked going to graveyards and sitting mm-hmm. in graveyards and that he felt at peace there. And he mm-hmm. talked about that the first time he sat with a patient was just before, he, it was about six hours before the patient passed, and he actually mm-hmm. heard the death rattle and he was there with him and, and he felt sh- like he had come home and Ugh. like he was completely at ease and peace for the first time in a long time. Wow. And um, I, I kid you not, like I, I, was, I was kind of brought to tears listening to him because it was the first time 
I'd heard this man in all the years I've known him really soften when he was talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is something I think that opens up for them or for some of these guys, it's really, um, it is their calling as much as it might be for us on the streets in a similar way. Hmm. I'm curious, what kind of training do they go through to assume this role? We based it on the 40-hour outside volunteer curriculum, you know, the idea mm-hmm. being that it would be community standard care. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they really, you know, they have to jump through the same hoops and go through mm-hmm. the same exercises and sit through the same long classroom hours <laughs> mm-hmm. in the middle of the summer, which is never fun, and, um, and, and get rigorously trained and then uh, have monthly training that continues. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all kind of palliative care theory, palliative care. Uh, they used to be able to provide a lot more kind of in contrast to uh, community care. They would actually provide a lot of the physical care mm-hmm. because of safety concerns. That has stopped as much. And so there's, very, there's more limited physical contact. However, they still are the ones who really know them best. They know when they're in pain. Mm-hmm. They know when they're they've had enough or when they need to have fluids. And I mean, they are just so incredibly attentive to one another. It's mm-hmm. remarkable. Now, do they carry this function out? I assume that you have, you spoke of your infirmary, infirmary, which I guess we would liken to an inpatient hospice. But mm-hmm. I, when you have inmates that are not quite so ill that they need to be in the infirmary, but they still are quite ill, I guess living in the general population, do your volunteers play a role there also? Not at this time. We would like to make that transition. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the idea of moving more to the palliative care model. Sure. Um, unfortunately, a lot of men reject the idea of having hospice care because they have the community model in mind, which means you know, when you sign that paper, you're no longer going to uh, seek further medical treatment, further um, curative measures. Right. And mm-hmm. in the prison, we don't have to have them sign that. Right. For them to receive hospice care, they can continue fighting and still receive this care. In fact, we're required to provide that care if they want it. Mm-hmm. So our hospice can kind of function in a very different way, which mm-hmm. is why, again, we're looking more towards changing it to a palliative care model. Mm-hmm. I see. Can these volunteers administer medications, or is that still under the purview of the nurse? No, that is all nursing staff. That's what I figured, yeah. Staff. yeah. Yeah, So if you had to sum it up, both of you, what do you think these hospice inmate volunteers would like our listeners to know about them? End of the day. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts? One of them the uh, wanted... Yeah. Go ahead, Corona. Go ahead, Marty. No, you, you have... Oh, I was just going to say that one of the, the volunteers had said that they want everybody to know that it's not a, like a James Cagney movie where they're wearing um, striped uniforms and are these uh, hateful kind of people, that they want people to know that they're like anybody else. They are compassionate and kind and caring individuals. Mm. Wow. I think that's, that kind of underlines it, just the depth of caring that they have for one another. Yeah. Wow. And we should be so lucky. Yes. Well, ladies, I congratulate you on a, that sounds like a very successful program under sometimes very trying circumstances. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? 
I think that that's it. Just mainly that these are real human beings facing sure. real loss and real pain and real illness, mm-hmm. and they are doing their best to take care of each other through it. Yeah. Um, Is there anything we can do as a community outside of your system to help? You know, donations are always welcome. Mm-hmm. Financial <laughs> donations, you mean? Right, Financial okay. donations so that we can provide things like tape, uh, not tape machines, but kind of iPod listening machines and those mm-hmm. kind of resources and music and DVDs and those kind of things for mm-hmm. the men who are dying. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would be welcome to contact me and uh, I can share my contact information if that's helpful or sure. appropriate. What would you like to share with us? Uh, yeah. If- so my contact information, my uh, office phone is 503 1350. Again, 503-373-1350. And you can also reach me by post at 2605 State Street, Salem, Oregon, 97301. And that would be Attention Chaplain Thompson, care of Oregon State Penitentiary. Wonderful. And if someone did want to send in a check, make it out to Oregon State Penitentiary? Uh, Oregon Department of Corrections and then it would okay. be uh, allocated to the Oregon State Penitentiary Hospice Program. Wonderful. Um, this, this will be transcribed, so people will be able to uh, read this in case they didn't catch that. Well, ladies, I'm very appreciative of your time and your talent, and uh, Chaplain Karuna, thank you for your dedication in your career, and Marty for being a volunteer. And just so everyone knows, Marty is actually in a student in our online Master of Science program, and I was so taken with some of her posts in her work here in the prison that is just so exceptional. So uh, thank you both so much, and hopefully our paths will cross again. So I would like to thank both of our guests, and I'd like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. Again, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2018, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificates in Palliative Care or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.